President Biden signs a $1.7 trillion spending bill into law. It avoids a government shutdown and includes more aid for Ukraine. It's Friday, December 30th. This is WVUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Southwest Airlines says it plans normal flight operations today, a week after a system-wide meltdown grounded flights and stranded thousands of passengers. Also this hour, Brazil declares three days of mourning for soccer legend Pele. The star helped grow the game across the world, including here in the U.S. And we take a look back at Kendall Square, Cambridge. Before it was a technology hub, it was a home for candy companies. It's just wild to reconcile the trans transformation and what's lost when Mm -hmm. one industry replaces another. In sports, the Celtics win partly sunny in the 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The powerful winter storm that swept across much of the country last week brought air travel to a near standstill. Thousands of passengers were stranded at airports, scrambling to find alternative ways to their destinations. Diana Opong from member station KUOW reports people are still trying to locate their bags more than a week later. Airline passengers are still waiting for lost luggage after winter weather snarled holiday travel at SeaTac Airport in Seattle. On Thursday, bags full of clothes, medication, and holiday gifts were sitting unclaimed. Marty Casey took an Alaska Airlines flight to see family in Philadelphia last week, but her luggage didn't make it. I spent the majority of the holidays on the phone trying to get through to someone and talk to them and get this issue resolved. Casey's bags spent Christmas Day at SeaTac and were eventually shipped to Philadelphia, but a technical issue with UPS delayed them again. Casey is flying back to Seattle without her bags. She's hoping to get them before the new year. For NPR News, I'm Diana Opong in Seattle. Government labor officials say Starbucks illegally refused to bargain with workers who have voted to unionize. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports the National Labor Relations Board has filed a complaint against the coffee chain related to 21 unionized stores in Oregon and Washington state. The complaint alleges that Starbucks broke labor laws by refusing to negotiate for a collective bargaining contract with Starbucks Workers United at multiple stores across the Pacific Northwest. Workers have filed numerous claims against the company, accusing representatives of not bargaining in good faith by delaying or quickly leaving scheduled sessions. Starbucks rejects that. It's accused the union of improperly recording meetings and has denied breaking labor laws. Now, federal labor officials are asking an administrative law judge to force Starbucks to regularly negotiate with the union and CEO Howard Schultz to read to workers a notice of their rights. Alina Seljuk, NPR News. Brazilian soccer legend Pele is being remembered by fans around the world. He died yesterday at the age of 82. Andrew Downey has written two books about Brazilian soccer, and he spoke to NPR today about Pele's life and legacy. He was the first player to, and the only player to win the World Cup three times. And I think by that feat alone, that puts him above many of the others that played the game. Uh, he was also a guy who took a small town club, uh, Santos, to, to the top of the world. They became the champions of South America and the champions of the world. Later in life, Pele served as an ambassador for the sport and witnessed its worldwide expansion. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. The state could soon run out of space to house families who need emergency shelter. The Massachusetts Department of Housing and Community Development has warned lawmakers that the shortage could leave some families in unsafe conditions. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports. The department says its 3,500 shelter spots are about full, and it won't be able to help place additional families starting in 90 days, unless the legislature approves money for more beds. That's a huge departure from how the program operates now, given that it's an emergency program and is intended to be available for all eligible families. Kelly Turley runs the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. She says the agency has successfully used similar threats in the past to push the legislature to approve more money. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. A Townsend Republican is asking a judge to review the results of a race for state representative. A recount found Andrew Shepard lost to his Democratic opponent, Margaret Scarsdale, by just seven votes. Shepard says he doesn't think the election was stolen, but wants to make sure every vote was properly counted. The new legislative session begins next Wednesday. Research from Brigham and Women's Hospital links the shingles infection with an increased long-term risk of having a stroke or heart attack. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports. The study followed 200,000 people and found those who developed shingles had a nearly 30% higher risk of later having a major cardiovascular event. The study's lead author, physician Sharon Curhan, says the risk may persist for well over a decade after the initial case. She says the findings highlight the importance of prevention. Given the availability of an effective vaccine, shingles vaccination could provide a valuable opportunity to prevent shingles and also possibly to reduce the risk of having a subsequent cardiovascular complication. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends adults 50 and older get two doses of the shingles vaccine. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Celtics beat the Los Angeles Clippers 116-110 to last night at the Garden. The season next game is Sunday when they'll visit the Denver Nuggets. And Fenway Park will host the NHL Winter Classic on Monday. The league's annual outdoor game features the Bruins and Penguins. It has people in Worcester considering a similar idea there. The head of the Woosocks tells the Telegram and Gazette the team is looking into hosting an outdoor hockey game at Polar Park in the next few years. It could feature the Railers, Worcester's minor league hockey team. Partly sunny today and warm. It'll be in the mid-50s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 40. Cloudy tomorrow with rain in the evening, a high in the mid-50s. It'll probably be rainy and in the 40s as we ring in the new year. Some rain Sunday morning will give way to sun. It'll be in the 50s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. The Supreme Court will wait until next year to hear arguments on the border restrictions known as Title 42. 
But a group of 19 state attorneys general, all Republicans, scored a victory this week after the justices left in place, at least temporarily, the constraints that the Trump administration implemented as a public health order. Since March of 2020, Title 42 has let U.S. border agents turn away migrants as soon as they cross the southern border on the basis of warding off COVID-19. Arizona is one of the states challenging the end of Title 42. Arizona State Attorney General is Mark Bronovich. Our reasoning is a legal reasoning that essentially says that if Joe Biden wants to rescind Title 42, he has to do it in a lawful and constitutional manner. And what he did was not consistent with the law. And then we as the states tried to intervene to protect our interest. And the Biden administration disagreed, saying the states didn't have an interest. And I think the events the last two years whether it's on a cost in health care, whether it's the cost of incarceration, or whether it's the cost of lost lives, every state in the United States now is a border state, and we all have an interest in making sure we have a secure border. So you just don't like the way he went about it? Look, I think Title 42 was you know, not designed to be a permanent fix or a permanent solution uh, to what's going on on our border. But the reality is the Biden administration and Secretary Mayorkas have systematically incentivized and decriminalized people breaking the law. And as a result of that, we have seen a historic and record amount of people illegally enter our country. Title 8 actually allows for some prosecution. It allows for legal yeah. action, fines, right. um, felonies, maybe even with multiple crossings. So what's wrong with allowing the Biden administration to go back to what we've always had, which is Title 8? The reality is, is that from day one, when Joe Biden was being sworn in, he started to decriminalize and incentivize people coming into the country illegally. So, I mean, if you remember, there was the interim guidance where the Biden administration was refusing to deport people with deportation orders, where we had to file a lawsuit. He stopped building the wall where taxpayers were having to pay for a wall that wasn't being built. The remain in Mexico policy, the list goes on and on. If they process an immigrant through Title Eight, they can prosecute. But if if most of them are done through Title 42, there are no legal avenues. That is part of the problem. The Biden administration is not prosecuting people for illegal entry and re-entry into our country. They are literally letting people make asylum claims, and then they're releasing them into our country. And sometimes, you know, they're being told to report to probation offices years down the road. What is going on right now is chaos. From your perspective on this lawsuit, specific to Title 42, how that would help this, as you call it, chaos, how, how we would all of a sudden control this chaos? Because the recidivism on Title 42, you've got migrants that are coming back one, two, three, four, yeah. five times that might not have that same ability if they actually were under Title 8. Because what we know right now is the system is not working. And if you talk to anyone in Border Patrol, the ranchers and farmers in Arizona, people that prosecute gang cases or people at the DEA that are prosecuting, going after the cartels, they will tell you that Title 42 is not the end-all, be-all. It's not a permanent policy. It was never meant to be. But, but it is one of the few tools we have left in our toolbox that is stopping even more people from illegally re-entering or illegally entering our country. And look, when President Obama was president, you know, they did, you know, Operation Chokehold. They aggressively sent judges and federal prosecutors to our southern border to aggressively prosecute entry and re-entry cases. And even during the Obama administration, they were able to stem the flow of immigration. So I'm not saying that this is some magic wand or solution. But until the Biden administration gets serious about securing our border, until they get serious about going after the cartels, prosecuting people for, you know, illegal reentry, 
we're going to continue to have this problem. But your argument right off the top was you were more concerned over the way President Biden tried to lift Title 42 more than actually Title 42 being lifted. So is your justification for the lawsuit, for being part of the lawsuit, that you don't agree with the way President Biden tried to lift Title 42 or that Title 42 should not be lifted? What I have said consistently is I believe in our institutions as a first-generation American. I believe in the process. And if the president wants to rescind Title 42, he has to go through the lawful process, which includes notice and comments by affected parties. So the first fundamental question is, has the president of the United States followed the legal process? And we say no. Okay. You know, just this week, the Biden administration is talking about making sure people from some countries have negative COVID tests. I mean, it's, I think it's the height of absurdity where, you know, there's kids being expelled. They're not allowed to go to school because they won't wear a mask because of COVID concerns. Do you still think there's a pandemic going on or do you think that is over? What, what I think is that there are concerns that people have expressed, including the president of the United States, regarding the pandemic and COVID-19. Um, I don't always agree with all of his solutions as a matter of policy, but what I was trying to point out is from a legal perspective is that the president and his administration is taking actions, saying there's a pandemic, and they're literally taking actions to try to mitigate and control it. Then my goodness, one of the things they should absolutely be doing is keeping Title 42 in place. So let me ask you this then, how do we fix this system? What do we do? The very first thing you have to do is aggressively enforce existing law. You have to gain control of the southern border. And then once you do that, you can start having a, a discussion. This is not like rocket scientists in the sense that there are countries like Canada and Australia that have immigration systems that are based on merits and points. But it has to begin with enforcing existing law. And look, I, I'm out here on the, you know, in Arizona, and it just seems like, in Washington, D.C., because we don't have term limits and we don't have balanced budget amendments, there's a, there's a permanent political class there, elected political class, too, that has an incentive and a motive in just perpetuating these issues and continuing to divide our country. I guess, in a lot of ways, I am a subjective optimist, but an objective pessimist, because I just think that the last 20 years, 25 years has shown that the people elected in Washington, Republicans, Democrats, a pox on them all, um, they don't get anything done. Arizona Attorney General Mark Bronovich, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brazilian soccer legend Pelé has died at the age of 82. Pelé now. What a beautiful goal from Pelé. El Rey Pelé. 100 goals for Brazil. He's often called the greatest of all time and is the only player to lead their country to three World Cup titles. The first when he was just 17 in 1958. He made the number 10 shirt an iconic image in world soccer. Pelé ended his career helping to popularize soccer here in the U.S. when he joined the New York Cosmos in 1975. And later in life, he served as an ambassador for the sport and witnessed its worldwide expansion. Andrew Downey has written two books about Brazilian soccer. He joins us now from Sao Paulo. Andrew, in his own words, I mean, Pelé said that when he started, he just wanted to be as good as his dad, who was also a soccer player in Brazil. He ended up, I think, being a lot more. What made him a legend? Well, as you said in your intro there, he was the first player to, and the only player to win the World Cup three times. And I think by that feat alone, that puts him above many of the others that played the game. Uh, he was also a guy who took a small town club, Santos, to the top of the world. They became the champions of South America and the champions of the world. He was comparable to, I think, Muhammad Ali in the US. He was the only guy 
along with Ali, who was recognisable in the whole world. And I think he did this at a time when football was becoming a business as well as a sport. And that gave him this projection all over the world. And it projected Brazil all over the world because before Pelé, before that team of the 1960s and 1970s, people, a lot of people did not know Brazil. And he really put Brazil on the map and it made him a true legend. A one-named superstar, that's how you know you're big. Uh, what's the mood in Brazil today? What's the country going to do? There has definitely been a huge outpouring of grief over the last 24 hours because Everyone recognizes, you know, the greatness of Pelé, the legend of Pelé. People were, I think, expecting his death. He's been in and out of hospital for more than a year. And the last month, his family have been posting pictures and I think preparing people for the worst because they knew that he was not getting much better. So there is this there is this grief, and, but people have taken it with a, with a kind of a naturalness because they knew they knew that it was about to come. Many big Brazilian superstars that came after Pelé, like Zico, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Neymar, they consider him an inspiration, but I don't think any of them really ever eclipsed Pelé in the hearts of Brazilians. No, I don't think so. Uh, they, they all, I mean, Pelé was this was a curious guy in the sense that he would often refer to himself in the third, and he would say, you know, Pelé is the football player, the public face, and Edson, his name was Edson yeah. Orantes de Nascimento, Edson is just the private man. Uh, and he had this he had this curious relationship with Brazilians. They realized how how great he was, uh, how brilliant he was, and how important he was for the country. But there was a lot of questions about whether he stood up for black Brazilians, you know, enough during the racism that he suffered in the, in the particularly in the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of questions about whether he should have done more to stand up to the military dictatorship in the 1960s and 70s. And he also had a, a very uh, a private life, shall we say? He ha he was married three times. He had several children. Yeah. Some yeah. out of wedlock, and I think these were all issues that really complicated his legacy for some Brazilians. You know, Andrew, the, the conversation of who's the greatest of all time, it's such a subjective thing, right? Because it's all about an opinion, but it's a fun argument to have. Argentina's Lionel Messi certainly made his case with what he just accomplished. But when it comes to Pelé, I mean, your opinion, was he the greatest of all time? Was he the GOAT? My belief is that, you know, Pelé won the World Cup three times. No one else has done that. A lot of people argue today that football is much harder now and that Pelé could not do what he did today. There's a lot of validity to that argument. My response to that, however, is that when Pelé played, he wore boots that were heavier. Even the ball itself was not as round. The pitches were, were, were much harder back then. Players could tackle from behind. Players got away with a lot more. Pelé had to put up with all that. They would often play two games in two or three days. Um, they would often be forced to eat apples and chocolate just to keep the strength up because they never had enough time to actually sit in restaurants and eat meals. So all that, for me, makes football more difficult back in Pele's day. And if you talk to people who played with Pele, they all said he was such an athlete. He was such a professional. If he played today, he would play to this higher standard that exists, that exists today. Andrew Downey joins us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Andrew, thanks for your thoughts. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on this last weekday of the year, a look back at some of the most memorable stories in 2022. It's 719. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. 
Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. If you're looking to celebrate in Beverly this weekend, the 29th annual New Year's event begins tomorrow afternoon at 3. It'll feature local artists and musicians. The afternoon will be capped off by a parade on Cabot Street and an early ball drop. That starts at 6.15. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high near 60. Partly cloudy tonight as temperatures fall to a low near around 42. Tomorrow, a cloudy New Year's Eve with a high near 56. There's a chance of rain after about 5 p.m. and the showers become a sure thing a few hours later. Temperatures will stay in the upper 50s and low upper 40s and low 50s overnight as the new year arrives. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. As the year comes to a close, we asked some of Morning Edition staff to talk about their most memorable stories of 2022. Hi, I'm Chad Campbell, a producer with Morning Edition. Before every host interview, we do extensive prep work behind the scenes. But sometimes we get a surprise. And those moments can be magical. Like when Rachel talked with singer Ifadayo Gatling of the Harlem Gospel Travelers in September. Thanks to the album's liner notes, we knew there was a special guest on the song I'm Grateful, but we didn't know the guest and Gatling were related. This special guest is my mom. And Wait, what? Yeah, that's my mom. I'm Get a preacher's out. kid. My mom is Pastor Cynthia McCants. That's my mom. I think we were all grateful that Pastor Cynthia McCants said yes. Hello, my name is Destiny Adams. My home state, Oklahoma, is also home to one of the first sit-ins in the civil rights movement. In 1958, Clara Looper led 13 black students to a whites-only lunch counter. One of the students was Looper's daughter, Marilyn. She would say all the time, I want you to believe in the sun when the sun didn't shine and to believe in the rain when the rain didn't fall, and to believe in a God that we've never seen. That's the way she would want to be remembered. 64 years later, Marilyn retells her mother's story, hoping to memorialize her contributions to the civil rights movement. 
with this conversation, I hope to do the same. My name is Lisa Wiener, producer with Morning Edition. Back in early February, I traveled to Ukraine with our host, A. Martinez, and Morning Edition editor, Rina Advani. We were there to report on the diplomatic wrangling that eventually led up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. But on a Sunday afternoon, two weeks before the start of the war, we attended a unity march of foreign expats who now called Kyiv home and who were determined to fight for their adopted homeland. I don't call myself an expat. That means I'm an ex-U.S. patriot. I'm a dual pat. I'm a thorough U.S. patriot and a Ukrainian patriot. Ukraine might be a distant country, but it is an important ally. And it is really important to show that we, as international and foreigners, support Ukraine. If there's ever a threat to Kiev, then I will join up with the Territorial Defense Battalion, like I know many of my friends will. Remembering that scene and the unshakable patriotism of those marchers, holding their nation's flags and chanting in Ukrainian, I think about where they are now. Did some of them join the fight? Maybe they were injured or worse. It was a moment before so much changed. And that's what will stick with me. My name is Milton Gavada. Look, I love working at NPR, but I'm not going to lie. I think about quitting my job and moving abroad all the time. So I was excited when we got to speak with somebody who did exactly that. Rick Martinez is a food writer. A while back, he bought a car and traveled to all 32 states in Mexico. He was doing research for his cookbook, Mi Cocina. People inviting me into their homes and showing me how to cook this food or cooks in a restaurant or in a, a stall in the market, like inviting me into the, the kitchen to show me how something was done. I think about our interview with him a lot because I've been trying to get more in touch with my food culture. I'm Adam Bierne. A moment I'll never forget was our interview with Kiyomi Lee, a Korean-American who found out in her 50s that her adoption story had been a lie. Through DNA, I discovered a half-sister who was also adopted, and we have a shared father. And that's when I discovered that he had been alive until about 10 years ago. Wow. It begs the question, did that parent even consent to having me be sent overseas and basically vanished from Korea? You heard Rachel Martin there say, wow, when Kiyomi revealed that she'd been robbed of the chance to meet her father. I had the exact same reaction listening in from the control room. I hope that she gets some answers from Korea's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is investigating cases like hers. My name's Julie Deppenbrock, and the most memorable story I worked on this year was about censorship. In their last issue of the year, students at a high school newspaper in Nebraska had published op-eds on LGBTQ rights. Days later, the paper and the journalism program were shut down. Rachel Martin and I spoke with one of the journalists, a trans student named Marcus Pennell. This had been like the first official thing from the school that was kind of saying, you know, like, we don't really want you here. Like, you can't really be yourself here. As a journalist, a queer person, and a former teacher, the story hit me really hard. Students are being censored at the same time that schools across the country are banning books that center LGBTQ stories. Hey, my name is Lily Quiroz. And during a year when reproductive rights were stripped away, this conversation between Leila and Ile was so comforting to me. 
It was a reminder to take time to ourselves, even when we're feeling frustrated with the world, and that people who have a platform should speak out for people's rights. Ile chooses to do that through her music. Now the protests are happening, which is empowering, but these things were happening still, you know, this oppression towards women because patriarchy says so. Is it why you put politics in your music to have these conversations? Yeah, definitely. For me, it's, it's my way of letting things go for a while and just having more energy to want to keep talking about this in a better way every time because there is a lot of social ignorance in this world and it can be cleared out in just a simple conversation. That's a sampling of the producers and editors who make Morning Edition with their memorable moments of 2022 on our air. They are just some of the dozens of journalists who make this program, along with engineers and technical directors, working every day to bring you stories from throughout the U.S. and the world. Happy New Year from us to you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we visit emergency rooms in China to get a sense of the impact of the latest COVID outbreak. It's 729. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news in the new year. Listen on the WBUR mobile app throughout 2023. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books with its annual New Year's Day event in-store in Cambridge and Boston from 1 to 5 on January 1st. Details at portersquarebooks.com. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. From NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden has signed that $1.7 trillion government spending bill into law. The measure includes a number of the administration's priorities, capping what Biden calls a year of historic progress. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports. The omnibus includes more than $770 billion in non-defense discretionary programs and more than $850 billion in defense funding, according to a bill summary. It also carves out nearly $45 billion in aid for Ukraine and NATO allies, which is more than Biden had requested. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel says a stiff prison sentence is handed to two men who prosecutors say were the ringleaders in the plot to kidnap Michigan's governor should be a warning to others who might be considering similar action. There are all kinds of ways to protest the government legally, right? You can, you know, write your representative or your governor a, a letter. Um, you can support another candidate. Um, you know, you can protest peacefully. But obviously what you cannot do is you cannot take up arms against your government. Earlier this week, the two men were sentenced to 16 and 19 years in federal prison, capping off the trials of those involved in the plot. House lawmakers are expected to release six years' worth of former President Donald Trump's tax returns today. The House Ways and Means Committee voted to release the returns last week. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts lawmakers are getting another pay raise in the new year. Most of their salaries will increase by more than 4 percent. The raises will be even higher for the state's six top elected officials. The Boston Globe reports the pay for the governor will go up 20 percent. That means Governor-elect Maura Healey will make $222,000 a year. The raises are the result of a pay hike approved in 2017. Red Sox Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley is asking for understanding regarding criminal charges against his daughter. Alexandra Eckersley was charged earlier this week. Police in Manchester say she misled them about giving birth to a child in a homeless encampment. The newborn was eventually found and taken to a hospital. Dennis Eckersley says his daughter has lived with severe mental illness. He says he's working on getting guardianship of his grandson. For the first time since the start of the pandemic, Boston's first night celebration will include a full slate of indoor and outdoor activities. The schedule includes a chance to hear one of the largest pipe organs in the world. It's at the Christian Science Mother Church. More now from WBUR's Amelia Mason. The massive pipe organ contains over 13,000 pipes. The biggest is 32 feet tall. Gigi Mitchell-Velasco is one of the organists scheduled to play in the first night concert. It will be her first performance with the giant organ. So I'm looking forward to making a lot of noise and maybe making almost no noise at all because I have a program that's very kind of varied from very quiet from the song of peace to very bombastic. The hour-long concert starts at 3 p.m. Saturday and wraps up with a rendition of Old Lang Syne. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. In sports, the Celtics have now won four in a row. They beat the L.A. Clippers 116-110 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will begin a four-game road trip on Sunday. That's when they'll visit the Denver Nuggets. Clear skies today with just a few clouds. Temperatures will top out near 60. Tonight, mid-40s and some clouds move in. Tomorrow, more clouds arrive for an overcast New Year's Eve in the mid-50s. Toward evening, it'll fall to the low 50s and there's a 100 percent chance of rain. The showers will probably continue into the morning of New Year's Day. Then it'll clear up for a mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez. China is grappling with what might be its worst COVID-19 surge since the start of the pandemic. Across the country, hospitals are overwhelmed. Infections have spread so fast since emergency measures were lifted earlier this month that several countries, including India, Japan, Italy, and the U.S., are requiring COVID-19 tests for passengers from China. Global concern that new variants could emerge prompted those moves. Joining us now is Beijing-based Associated Press reporter Dake Kang, who recently visited Chinese hospitals treating COVID patients. Uh, Dake, what did you see during your reporting from these hospitals in China? Yeah, so uh, I had been to hospitals um, in Beijing 
um, at the beginning of this wave. And at first it seemed quite orderly, uh, you know, short lines and all of that. But later, uh, my colleagues and I went to hospitals uh, outside of Beijing in kind of smaller cities and towns. And what we saw there was, frankly, alarming. Uh, you know, we were seeing packed ER wards, uh, patients uh, lined up in the hallways or lying even on the floor because there was just no space for uh, all of the patients that were coming in. Uh, we saw ambulances being turned away um, because medical workers were basically warning that there weren't enough medical resources to take care of uh, incoming patients. So uh, what we saw on the ground was, was, was quite dire. Is there any idea why these hospitals outside of Beijing are suffering more? Yeah, um, you know, China's medical infrastructure is quite unequal. Uh, in big cities like Beijing or Shanghai, uh, you have, you know, uh, pretty top tier medical uh, care. But uh, the moment you go outside of the big cities, uh, it's a totally different story. Uh, you know, China does not have a strong uh, medical infrastructure uh, in smaller cities and towns, and they do not have enough ICU beds to uh, grapple with uh, China's large population. Um, on top of that, Chinese people in general have a tendency to rely uh, on hospitals in particular uh, for even basic medical care um, for a variety of reasons, uh, cultural and uh, economic. Um, and so uh, as a result, uh, when you have a public health uh, crisis like this uh, COVID wave, uh, what ends up happening is that a lot of people flood hospitals and that can easily overwhelm the system. How did the citizens there react when the government suddenly just lifted the isolation measures earlier this month? I think there was quite a lot of surprise, confusion, joy. There was, there was, it was a mixed reaction, right? I mean, a lot of people have suffered quite a lot under China's very harsh zero COVID policy, which this year in particular was just getting more and more absurd. I mean, you know, entire cities constantly going under lockdown. It was really difficult to plan any kind of travel because you just didn't know if there would be some kind of snap lockdown or notification telling you that you couldn't leave. Um, so I think a lot of people were happy that those measures were released, but at the same time, you know, there's a bit of whiplash because this change has been a total 180, seemingly overnight. I mean, we went from having harsh measures that the government said would not change, that they would resolutely uphold, uh, to all of a sudden going the opposite direction. And really quick, China's National Health Commission counted 4,128 new cases the day before um, that, that when they released their data was December 24th. I mean, the reality on the ground seems to like really differ from the official data. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the official data stopped being reliable because the government stopped mandating mass testing for everyone. And so they just can't catch all the cases anymore. That's AP reporter Day Kang. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. New York Representative-elect George Santos is facing mounting investigations from state and local prosecutors. He's slated to be sworn in next week, but has admitted to misleading the public about much of his life story. His behavior has outraged a lot of people in his district, which includes Long Island and parts of Queens. Here's NPR's Jasmine Gars. The list of lies Santos told constituents about himself goes on and on. That he got a degree from Baruch College. That he lost several employees in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida in 2016. That he's Jewish and his family escaped the Holocaust. 
That one hit especially hard here among some in Manhasset in Long Island. I think you used a very serious issue to try and garner votes in an area that has a high Jewish population. Kelly Sklar votes Democrat. She says she's put off by all the misleading information Santos gave, but... Lying about being a relative or distant Holocaust survivor in a time with anti-Semitism raging, that I think is even worse. He recently addressed the many inconsistencies in his biography on Fox News. I made a mistake. And I think humans are flawed and we all make mistakes. In his campaign, Santos touted himself as a gay Latino Republican. He also said he came from a humble background. He now says he's trying to clear the air before taking his seat in Congress. But those mistakes, as he's described them, might be very serious. There are now several investigations into whether Santos broke any laws. Don't seat Santos! Don't seat Santos was the battle cry at a rally in Mineola, part of Santos' soon-to-be congressional district. Local Republican leadership has condemned Santos's behavior, but there's not yet been a call for resignation. Even among local Republican voters, there's a lot of displeasure. Here's Long Island resident Fran Sabatino. I love that he's Republican and that, you know, his being there will be give the Republicans an edge, but I do not like what he did. Sabatino says she's disappointed. I'd be very hard-pressed to vote for him again, and yet I would hate to vote for the Democrats. So, so you're you kind know, of in between a rock I and a am. hard place. Exactly, honey. Exactly. For Kelly Sklar, there's no confusion about what needs to happen next. I think we need to have a revote. He ran on a platform that isn't true. He lied. Those lies are now under scrutiny by federal, state, and local prosecutors who are investigating whether Santos broke any laws. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, Republicans promise more oversight of the Biden administration's targets on climate change as they take over the House in the new year. Some climate activists think the U.S. can still meet some ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goals. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, how Kendall Square evolved from a focus on candy to one on science. WBUR's Andrea Shea tells us about her episode of the podcast Last Scene. And in our next hour, Brazil's new president is inaugurated this weekend. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva is a former president who spent time in jail. Upper 50s today under mostly clear skies, mid-40s tonight with a few more clouds. Even more clouds move in tomorrow and temperatures will be in the mid-50s. It falls to the low 50s toward evening and you should expect rain as we welcome the new year. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. Now, in business news, Massachusetts restaurant owners are hoping a positive trend in hiring continues into the new year. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. Nearly 70 percent of restaurant operators in the state say they don't have enough employees to support customer demand. That's according to the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. But the group's president and CEO, Stephen Clark, says restaurants here are following a national trend. Hiring is up. The restaurant industry across the country has added jobs for 23 straight months, and there's no other industry that's doing that. So we continue to add numbers to our total jobs. It's just we're not fully back to uh, 2019 levels yet. The total number of restaurant jobs is 3 percent lower than pre-pandemic. The industry is offering more retirement and health insurance plans that help to attract workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Southwest Airlines says it's trying to fly a full schedule today after its week-long meltdown, and that appears to be the case at Logan Airport so far this morning. Just one Southwest flight has been canceled. It was an early morning trip from Logan to Baltimore. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The third season of WBUR's Last Scene podcast is out, and it features new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Those include a story from our own arts and culture reporter, Andrea Shea, about Cambridge Brands, the last traditional candy factory left on Cambridge's Confectioner's Row. It's notoriously hard to get inside Cambridge Brands, which is a subsidiary of Tootsie Roll Industries, but Andrea did. In this excerpt, she gets an exclusive tour with a real-life lady, Willy Wonka, 90-year-old CEO Ellen Gordon. Let's have a taste. What was it like as a child? Were you, like, running around in candy factory? It just sounds like a, a dream come true. <laughs> you, were, you were a kid in a candy shop. Yes. I grew up in the candy factory in the sense that on weekends... Um, the biggest treat was to be able to go with my father to work and to go to the factory. She remembers riding a lot of freight elevators as a kid. Now it's our turn. I'm, I'm having my Willy Wonka moment. <laughs> One staff member jokes we won't see any Oompa Loompas on this tour. This is the fifth floor, our Charleston Chew department. All of the Charleston shoes in the world are made here. We have a nougat kitchen. 
And Andrea Shea joins me now. I'm so jealous. It sounds like you had an adventure. I had no idea every Charleston chew in the world was made right across the river. I know. That candy has been made in Cambridge for like a century along a stretch that used to be known as Confectioner's Row. That was the kind of mystery, the hidden, the lost uh, artifact that we were hunting for via this podcast. So I trace the history of candy making in Cambridge back to the 1800s. And in the mid-1900s, Rupa, there were more than 60 candy companies, including the first and biggest one, Necco, which is short for the New England Confectionery Company. Do you know Necco I do, wafers? Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but all of these companies are gone except for Cambridge Brands, which is uh, kind of fascinating. Like, what happened to them? Where did they go? Mm. And what does it say about a neighborhood's transformation? So, you know, that was what we set out to find. And when I say we, I was, I had a partner in crime, and her name is Susan Benjamin, and she's a candy historian, and she actually owns what's billed as the country's only history-based candy shop in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. But she grew up in Brookline and has this personal connection to Necco. And so she was just this amazing tour guide, this font of knowledge, totally quirky and interesting. And she really was game to go along for this ride. All right, she sounds like the ideal partner in crime, but what made you want to go after this story? Well, I love history stories, mm-hmm. and here in the Boston area. There are plenty. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just, and then food history is really, um, there's something so uh, nostalgic and just primal about it. Also, you know, I've lived in Boston for about 20, more than 20 years, and Kendall Square has changed so much just in the past decade. Mm -hmm. But then when you hear about a place like Confectioner's Row, which was this booming candy-making hub in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries, it's, it's just wild to try to kind of reconcile in your mind the transformation of a single neighborhood. And it makes you think about what's lost when... Mm One industry replaces another. In Confectioner's Row time, it was like bootstrapping immigrants coming in and opening up all these small, different size candy-making shops, making every kind of candy you could imagine. (laughs) And now it's biotech. So it's like from sugar to science. And so these are the things that we explore in the podcast. And when I say we, Susan Benjamin was truly instrumental in just um, bringing it all home. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a deeper way. That was WBUR arts and culture reporter Andrea Shea discussing her story on our last seen podcast. It's called The Lost Confectioner's Row. To hear the full episode and the new season, go to wbur.org slash last scene. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you, Rupa. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, some of the musicians we want to remember from 2022. And in 20 minutes, more more people than ever died from drug overdoses in the U.S. in 2022. But the New York promises major reforms in opioid addiction treatment. It's 751.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration, while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org. As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it'll help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Tomorrow afternoon, there will be an early New New Year's Eve celebration in Foxborough. First night at Patriot Place will include music, ice sculptures, and music. It'll be capped off by fireworks at 7. In your forecast, mostly sunny and upper 50s today, partly cloudy and mid-40s tonight. Cloudy tomorrow in the mid-50s. On the last evening of the year, it falls to around 50, and there's a good chance of rain that may last into New Year's morning. Right now, it's 45 degrees in Boston at 7.52. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. Let's spend a little time appreciating the work of some of the musicians who died in 2022. It was a tough year for those who love the sound of Philadelphia. Philly Soul lost a few of its architects, such as producer and songwriter Tom Bell, studio owner Joe Tarsia, and William Hart, singer with Delphonics. In January, we lost a legendary voice, Ronnie Spector, the Ronettes. And in August, one of the greatest songwriters in Motown history died. Lamont Dozier co-wrote smash hits such as Baby Love, Reach Out, I'll Be There, You Keep Me Hanging On, and this one for the Supremes. Two jazz legends died in September. Pianist Ramsey Lewis brought swing to pop songs. And saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders took the spirit of John Coltrane into new territories. A Pulitzer Prize winning composer died in February. George Crumb wrote works as tender as a hymn or as terrifying as war. A number of film score composers died this year, too. Van Gelis wrote the music for Blade Runner and went to number one with this piece from the movie Chariots of Fire. Monty Norman came up with one of the most recognizable riffs in film history. And director David Lynch lost two of his collaborators, composer Angelo Badalamenti and singer Julie Cruz, best known for this song from Twin Peaks. She was called the Nightingale of India. Lata Mangeshkar lent her voice to more than a thousand Bollywood films. Yeah, 
Another singer known for film soundtracks, Irene Cara, died last month. Fame was a top 10 hit, and then this song went all the way to number one. Two of the men who brought the musical hair to Broadway died, writer James Rado and producer Michael Butler. Give me head with hair, long beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, stinging, flaxen, waxen. Speaking of long beautiful hair, here's someone who brought theatrical flair to the rock scene. Meatloaf scored one of the biggest hits of the 70s with his album Bat Out of Hell. This man practically destroyed pianos when he played. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. The killer Jerry Lee Lewis was one of rock and roll's founding fathers. You broke my wheel, but a Someone who took a slightly different approach to the piano. Romania's Radu Lupu was considered perhaps the greatest concert pianist of his generation. A beloved rock drummer died in March. Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters was just 50 years old. In the 70s, a few British bands started incorporating Jamaican music into their sound, and that gave ska its second wave. Terry Hall of The Specials died just a few weeks ago. In the mid-90s, you couldn't go far without hearing one of Coolio's hits. He died in September, not long after his 59th birthday. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. And then just about a month later, one of hip-hop's most creative young rappers was killed, Takeoff, from the trio Migos. One of the greats in Brazil's Tropicalia movement died last month, Gal Costa. And one of the founders of the Nueva Trova scene that thrived at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution also died, Pablo Milanes. This past year, we said goodbye to two of the queens of country music. Loretta Lynn had 16 number one singles on the country charts. Well, I was born to call miner's daughter In a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler And the mom in the mother-daughter duo, the Judds, Naomi Judd, died in April. Love is alive and in our breakfast table Olivia Newton-John was one of the most popular singers of the late 70s and early 80s. This song stayed at number one for a stunning 10 weeks. We also lost one of the most successful rock songwriters from that time. Christine McVie wrote some of Fleetwood Mac's biggest hits, like Don't Stop, You Make Loving Fun, Say You Love Me, and this one found new life this past year.
Also, the man who signed Fleetwood Mac died this past summer. Mo Austin was a wildly successful studio executive who worked with Neil Young, Prince, Madonna, R.E.M., and many others. He was 95. And those are just a few of the many musicians we lost in 2022. If you heard a favorite of yours, maybe just go out and enjoy some of their music over the weekend. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. government adverts a shutdown with President Biden's signature on a $1.7 trillion spending bill, including billions for national defense and for Ukraine. It's Friday, December 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, 2022 was the worst year on record for drug overdoses in the U.S., but there were also major advances in addiction treatment. You began to normalize and understand addiction as a disease, and we start to treat people who are suffering from addiction as human beings. Also this hour, young Republicans are demanding change from their party to keep up with their generation. And organists play one of the world's biggest instruments for Boston's first night. It's like baking a cake. Once you put all your different recipes on those buttons, you can choose your recipe at will. Partly sunny today in the 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Forecasters have issued a flood watch for Erie County, New York. Temperatures are expected to rise into the 50s this weekend. The region, including the city of Buffalo, was paralyzed by a blizzard last weekend that dumped nearly four feet of snow in some areas. NPR's Brian Mann reports the storm is being blamed for the deaths of at least 40 people. Travel bans have been lifted, electricity is restored, and Buffalo's airport has been reopened. But the cleanup and the grieving continue. Local officials say more bodies have been recovered, including that of a four-month-old child. But autopsies are still needed to determine whether the deaths are storm-related. Local officials have sparred publicly over whether the emergency response and snow removal, especially inside the city of Buffalo, could have been faster and more effective. With temperatures in the 50s and rain in the forecast, flooding is the next big concern. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says crews are standing by with sandbags, water pumps and generators. Brian Mann, NPR News in upstate New York. A Congressional House investigation is sharply criticizing the Food and Drug Administration's review of a controversial drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports lawmakers say the FDA took highly unusual steps to approve it, despite the drug's high price and likely ineffectiveness. Two House committees, Oversight Reform and Energy and Commerce, said the FDA went outside of its normal independent review process to work directly with Aduhelm's maker, Biogen. The company had already canceled clinical trials because of the drug's ineffectiveness. Yet the agency worked with the company to guide the drug toward approval, which was granted in June of last year, prompting outcry from Alzheimer's experts that effectively sidelined the drug. Previous investigations, including by the FDA itself, pointed to abnormalities in its process. 
Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Many regions across Ukraine spent Thursday night without electricity following the latest barrage of Russian missile attacks. Speaking through an interpreter, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said it was especially difficult in cities, including Kyiv and Odessa. Unfortunately, there were several hits. During the day, our energy workers and repair crews did everything so that Ukrainians felt the consequences of the terrorist strike as little as possible. There were power cuts in most regions of Ukraine, but this is nothing compared with what would have happened were it not for our heroic anti-aircraft forces and air defense. The Russian Defense Ministry said it had carried out a massive strike on Ukraine's energy and military industrial infrastructure using high-precision weapons. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. In the new year, the minimum wage in Massachusetts will go up to $15 an hour. Sam Hudzik reports that rate will be one of the highest in the nation. The minimum wage in Massachusetts goes up to $15 on New Year's Day, the last of five annual increases mandated by a 2018 law. A lot of people thought this was impossible. That's Andrew Farnitano from the labor-backed group Raise Up Massachusetts, which pushed for the minimum wage increases. We were told that $15 an hour was, was unachievable, was a pipe dream. But it happened, and he believes there's an appetite to raise it even more in coming years. In the new year, the rates in Maine, Vermont, and Rhode Island will all top $13. New Hampshire's minimum wage remains tied to the federal rate, which has been stuck at $7.25 for over a decade. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sam Hudzik. The family of a woman who died by suicide is suing the Stoughton police officers who they believe groomed and sexually assaulted her for years. The suit blames three former officers for the woman's death. The Norfolk District Attorney tells the Boston Globe prosecutors are still reviewing the case to see if criminal charges can be pursued. The DA said back in September there was no, quote, criminality in her death. Rentham State Rep. Sean Dooley has resigned. He filed a letter of resignation announcing his term was over earlier this week. It's unclear why Dooley resigned. His term was set to expire on Tuesday. It's 8.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. The Celtics topped the Los Angeles Clippers Clippers 116 to 110 last night at the Garden. The season's next game is Sunday night when they'll visit the Denver Nuggets. A two-day-long hockey fan fest begins today at Boston City Hall Plaza. The free family event is a lead-up to the NHL Winter Classic at Fenway Park on Monday. Boston's Commissioner of Property Management, Eamon Shelton, says fans are in for a great time. There's going to be all different interactive games. There'll be uh, different opportunities to get autographs. There will also be the Stanley Cup will be here. So I know people always love to see the Stanley Cup. So there should be quite a bit. uh, And again, food and drink. So there's quite a lot going on. As for the hockey game itself, it'll be held Monday afternoon at Fenway Park. And it pits the Bruins against the Pittsburgh Penguins. In your forecast, partly sunny today and warm. It'll be in the mid-50s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be around 40. 
cloudy tomorrow with rain in the evening, a high in the mid-50s. It'll probably be rainy and in the 40s as we ring in the new year. Some rain Sunday morning will give way to sun. It'll be in the 50s. Right now it's 46 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. The Justice Department is suing Amerisource Bergen over opioids. In their civil lawsuit, federal prosecutors accused the drug wholesale distributors of failing to notify the government about suspicious opioid orders. It's just the latest chapter in a pivotal year for the opioid crisis. More people died than ever before from drug overdoses as street fentanyl flooded communities. But there have also been major reforms in addiction treatment. This year, drug companies also agreed to pay more than $50 billion to help communities recover from the opioid epidemic. NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann joins us now to take stock. Brian, so many people are still dying. Why does the opioid crisis keep getting worse? You know, I think it's helpful to remember how the COVID pandemic kept changing, right, as different strains of the virus emerged. Well, the opioid epidemic is kind of similar. The type of opioids keeps changing. First, we had prescription pain pills sold by drug companies and pharmacies. They ignited this public health crisis. Then people shifted to heroin, which is more dangerous. And now what we're seeing is more and more people using fentanyl, which is this deadly synthetic opioid That's so powerful, it's contributing to a drop in American life expectancy. The CDC now says overdose deaths appear to have peaked in March of this year, but at a really deadly level, 110,000 Americans dying from drugs in a single 12-month period. And a lot of those are under the age of 40. Uh, What are they saying about the danger of fentanyl? Well, they're scared. I I spent time in Tacoma, Washington with Marche Osborne, who's 31. She used to use heroin, which she felt like she could maintain pretty safely using that drug. But now these volatile fentanyl pills are the only opioids she can find on the street. They're zombifying people. They're anybody will do anything for a pill. It's ridiculous. Like they're turning people, they're dehumanizing people. And it's not a good thing. And it's not going to go anywhere good if if it continues. And because of fentanyl, drug overdoses are now a leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 40. And it's led, though, to some major reforms this year in addiction treatment. Uh, What's changing? Yeah, for a long time, the disease of addiction has been siloed off from the rest of the healthcare system because of stigma and bureaucratic red tape and the lack of insurance coverage. A lot of people, most people with addiction, still get no help of any kind, which is crazy because there are actually great medications like methadone and buprenorphine and naloxone. These drugs help people stop using opioids or they help reverse overdoses before they're fatal. And so what's happened this year is the Biden administration and Congress have pushed through a series of really major reforms. Some of them actually tucked into that spending bill that uh, President Biden just signed. And all these reforms are making it easier for doctors and medical clinics to prescribe these life-saving medications. I spoke with Dr. Rahul Gupta, who heads the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. You begin to normalize and understand addiction as a disease, and we start to treat people who are suffering from addiction as human beings, and then be able to prescribe them treatments 
and more of these medications are now being dispensed. CDC data suggests since March, month by month, the rate of overdose deaths has started to come down. So experts I talk to are hopeful. They hope this is a real turning point. What about stopping fentanyl from coming into the U.S.? Any progress there? The answer here is no. The Biden administration says border agents did seize twice as many fentanyl pills coming from Mexico in 2022, more than 50 million pills being smuggled in, mostly through ports of entry. But that doesn't appear to really be putting a dent in the street supply. Fentanyl is just everywhere right now, and it's it's really cheap. Now, one more big development this year was a reckoning with pharmaceutical companies. They made and sold a lot of opioid pain pills. How much will corporate America pay and will that money help? Yeah, Big Pharma really ignited this public health crisis, aggressively marketing opioids beginning in the late 90s. 2022 was a year companies ranging from CVS and Walmart to Cardinal Health and Johnson & Johnson, they came to the table and agreed to pay more than $50 billion in settlements. Just yesterday, the Justice Department actually announced they're suing another big corporation, Amerisource Bergen, over its opioid practices, billions of dollars more on the line there. These companies all deny any wrongdoing, but experts I talk to say this money really could help. It'll fund a bunch of drug treatment programs, a bunch of health care, especially in rural areas and urban neighborhoods where the need is desperate. No one believes this will be a silver bullet, A. This isn't going to cure the opioid crisis. But along with the other reforms we talked about, this development could save a lot of lives. That's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Brian, thanks. Thank you. It has been a very bad, no good holiday season for Southwest Airline passengers. April Prevost was one of them. The Memphis resident was traveling with her family when they got stuck last week at Denver International Airport. It was negative three degrees in Denver and our jackets were in our suitcase. And so my kids were in short sleeves and we didn't have anything. We bought some hats and gloves at the airport. Hers was among the thousands of Southwest flights scrapped since a massive winter storm started disrupting air travel last week. Democrats and Republicans in Congress have complained to the airline and the U.S. Department of Transportation for not acting sooner to protect passengers. Now, we've heard lots of explanations for the meltdown, like old technology and the airline's unusual approach to routing flights. A former employee tells NPR that she recently left Southwest because of the chaotic scheduling and mandatory overtime. This is exactly why this is happening is because you just keep giving your employees overtime and you'll fire them if they say no. Hallie Chauvin says she often worked 20 hour shifts. I keep saying now like to my friends, like this is why I quit. You know, it seemed like it wasn't really talked about. A lot of the employees there like can't really talk about it because it risks their jobs. They can't really like post about it on social media or anything. In a statement, Southwest says the recent disruptions are due to crew scheduling issues, not a lack of staffing. The company says it will honor reasonable requests for reimbursement from customers whose flights were canceled or significantly delayed. But April Prevost is still wondering whether she'll get her money back. I feel nervous that they're going to try to not reimburse us. Southwest Chief Commercial Officer Ryan Green recently apologized for the cancellations. My personal apology on behalf of myself and everyone at Southwest Airlines for all of this. But even after all the hassle, April Provost isn't giving up on the airline. I hope they recover. Like we love Southwest. We've flown them for years and we're cardholders. We use points to fly this trip. 
Southwest says it plans to return to normal operations with minimal disruptions today. Sunday ushers in a new year and in Brazil, a new president, too. Luis Inacio Lula da Silva will take the oath of office in an afternoon ceremony. The leftist president-elect narrowly beat the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, who had moved Brazil to the right. Lula was president once before in the early 2000s, and in an effort to prevent violence at the inauguration, the Supreme Court has ordered a four-day ban on firearms in the capital, Brasilia. Here's NPR's Kerry Khan. The mood and tunes were upbeat as Rio de Janeiro's mayor Eduardo Paes handed out the millionth meal at a neighborhood samba school turned community kitchen. It's great that the poor can get food here, says Paes, but how absurd it is to live in a country as wealthy as Brazil and people are still going hungry, he said. More than a third of Brazilians don't have enough money to buy food now, according to the government. Incoming President Lula says he will fix that and help the poor, a pledge he reiterated on election night. Brazil is my cause, and fighting against poverty is what I will fight for until I die, he told supporters. That was a lot easier during his first two terms in office when his government benefited from a worldwide commodity boon. Tens of millions of Brazilians rose from poverty then. Today, Brazil's economy is struggling post-pandemic. Growth next year is projected at less than 1%. And politically, he's facing a hostile Congress filled with lawmakers like Sostenes Cavalcante. Fernando, eu sou direita conservador. E eu não tenho... I'm a right-wing conservative, and I have no desire to dialogue with the leftist Lula. Calvalcante was just re-elected and is a leader in the now-powerful Evangelical Caucus, allies of outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro's party, which now dominates in Congress. That is going to make it difficult for Lula to pass key legislation, especially his pledge to stop deforestation in the Amazon, which grew to record levels under Bolsonaro. In many port towns in and around the rainforest, like this one in Tefe, merchants saw a boost economically in the last few years. Under the right-wing president, regulations were relaxed, as well as environmental protection, says dock worker Raimundo Nonato da Silva. I voted for Bolsonaro twice. He helped us a lot, says Nonato da Silva. He's worried business will go bust once Lula is sworn in this Sunday. But about four hours by boat up a major tributary from Tefe, fisherman Jose Evangelo de Olviere Silva is anxious for Lula to take power. A gente acompanhava pela televisão, ele falava né, sobre a Amazônia, sobre a vigilância, sobre o monitoramento. Lula always talks about preserving the Amazon, he says, and we need it. He takes stock of his catch for the day as he says his community lost government support under Bolsonaro when he cut the Amazon fund, supported by rich nations. Lula has pledged to restart it. Sao Paulo-based political scientist Guilherme Casarroyes says the world is much different than the last time Lula was president, especially with the U.S. and China, both key economic partners for Brazil. Now Lula's got to navigate a completely different situation where China and the United States are going head to head. 
And that has the potential of making Brazil's life pretty hard. Lula's inauguration team says it's expecting 19 heads of state at Sunday's ceremony. The U.S. delegation will be led by the Interior Secretary. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new exhibition at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles celebrates the Virgin Mary, one of Christianity's most popular figures who appears on just a few pages of the Bible. It's 819. Tomorrow is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for the year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm Scott Tong. We know the news is often filtered through social media. This year, though, social media itself became the news. We look back at the year online from TikTok to Twitter and the latest from Ukraine, which has come under heavy bombing from Russia in recent days as the war continues into 2023. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The annual First Night Chatham celebration kicks off tomorrow afternoon at 1. It includes music and activities for kids. The event culminates with the Noise Parade, beginning at 6. That will end with fireworks at Veterans Field. And for your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high near 60, partly cloudy tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 42. Tomorrow, a cloudy New Year's Eve with a high near 56. There's a chance of rain after about 5 p.m. and the showers become a sure thing a few hours later. Temperatures will stay in the upper 40s and low 50s overnight as the new year arrives. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. For many Christians, the focus at this time of year is on Jesus Christ. But it's also a time to remember his mother. Over the centuries, Mary became one of the most popular figures of Christendom, yet she appears on just a few pages of the Bible. Visualizing the Virgin Mary is an exhibition of illuminated manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. It shows how she was portrayed by artists in the Middle Ages. NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg has more on why Mary became so popular. 
she was approachable. They had someone who was kind of on their side. Elizabeth Morrison, Getty head of manuscripts, says all the talk about damnation and hell was throwing ordinary worshipers. In the early Middle Ages, Jesus was a little bit of a scary figure, and so they latched onto the Virgin Mary as someone who they thought could really empathize with them. She was warm, inclusive, understanding. They told her their problems, and she told the problems to her holy son. Jesus was more likely to listen to mom. It's just like kids playing off parents against each other today, right? Mary doesn't look that cozy and welcoming in the Getty's early manuscripts. The exhibit, curated by Maeve O'Donnell Morales, shows her a devoted mother, thin and dour. It wasn't until the Renaissance that artists gave her golden curls, flawless skin, and beautiful blue eyes. For centuries, there's been debate about her. Born without original sin, Christ her only child, was she really a virgin, technically, after Jesus was born? A midwife in apocryphal writings doubted the virgin was still a virgin. And you know what happened? What? Her hands shriveled up. And then this is the best part of the story. She says, I don't doubt you any longer. You're totally a virgin. And the virgin asked an angel to bring her hands back. And it came to pass. Mary's son also inspired legends. Early Christians were curious about his childhood. Infancy gospels describe him as a naughty little boy. He wanders off and his parents are afraid he's gotten lost. It turns out okay. The apocryphal stories continue and none of them would exist without Mary, the mother. Today's artists see the Virgin as a feminist, a West African deity, an inspiration for tattoos. All to the good, says the Getty's Beth Morrison. They're making you double think it. They're saying, okay, she's not the figure you think you saw. They're changing our assumptions about what the Virgin represents. Art, like Mary, is eternal. I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News. Time now for StoryCorps. New Year's Eve is one of the busiest nights for bars across the country. Two former bartenders, Albert Johnson and Donna Cuthbert, came to StoryCorps to remember working the holiday at the Starlight Lounge, a historic gay bar in Brooklyn. New Year's Eve, the best thing to do is go in party mode with the people. You know, setting up the bar and people coming in with noisemakers and the music and the, the, you know, the laughter, you, you know, spilling drinks, picking them up, you know, you name it. It's all going on and nobody really cares. And the only thing is it goes on to sometimes like 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's also kind of lonely. If you're by yourself and you're a bartender, it's like you see all this hugging and kissing at midnight. And most of the time bartenders know this and we kind of like gather around each other. But working New Year's Day, oh, that is really heart-wrenching. I think the most depressing day in the world for bartenders is New Year's Day. I do not like working because people may have gotten dumped. Uh, they just don't know what to do with this upcoming year. And you can see it in their eyes. Now, we have to explain to the world what the starlight was. <laughs> it's the black gay version of Cheers. Right. There was a family atmosphere there that you was second to none. That jukebox had everything on there from Muddy Waters to Beyonce. It was the most welcoming place in the world. Mm-hmm. 
there were people that stayed there and some of them never went home. There's this one story. Somebody had been cremated and they brought him to the start of life before they were going to dump his ashes. Well, they all got drunk and they didn't take the man home. <laughs> <laughs> they were cleaning up the back storage area and he was stuck back up on a shelf for about 15 years. But they found the family and they returned. I don't even think they realized they had left the man there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that was a case of a party. The man did not want to go home. Let's just show you, you could party in that place and just forget wherever you were. And I'm glad I got to be part of that. Oh, I'm definitely glad I had that experience. As long as I live will be those nine years standing behind that bar in the Starlight Lounge. And the wonderful people and the infamous people that was on the other side. That's former bartenders Albert Johnson and Donna Cuthbert remembering their days and nights pouring drinks at the Starlight Lounge in Brooklyn. Their StoryCorps conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com slash share. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, perhaps more than any other company, Starbucks embodied the major trends in American workplaces in 2022 with worker shortages, rising wages, unionization, and automation. And young Republicans are urging the GOP to change in order to appeal to their generation. It's 829. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. From NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. 
New York Congressman-elect George Santos facing growing calls to give up his seat in the House after he admitted to lying about his heritage, his education, and work experience during his campaign. Terry Sheridan of member station WSHU reports that Democratic lawmakers and community leaders on Long Island held a rally last night demanding that Santos step down. Santos calls what he did resume embellishment, saying he went to schools that he never attended and worked at firms that have no record of him. But to protesters, it was his claim that he was Jewish and his grandparents were Holocaust survivors that was most egregious. Rabbi Deborah Bravo leads the Markham, New York congregation. We should never need to lie about who we are and to lie about being descendants of Holocaust survivors for the purpose of political gain is beyond unacceptable. Those present say investigations by the New York Attorney General and Nassau County District Attorney need to continue and that the House Ethics Committee should get involved if he does not resign. For NPR News, I'm Terry Sheridan on Long Island. Top congressional Republicans have remained silent about the controversy swirling around Santos. He's due to be sworn in next week along with the other new House members. President Biden has signed that massive $1.7 trillion bill that funds the government operations through the end of the federal budget year next September. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Medical experts say a new strain of COVID should not be a major cause of concern. The CDC finds more than half of new COVID cases in the Northeast are linked to the new XBB variant. Dr. Shira Daron is an epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. She says while it's not great to have a new variant come up, it is our new normal. The way this virus um, seems to go in waves every couple of months like this, it's not likely that you're going to have a winter go by without a wave in it. And so, you know, this is something that we are going to have to figure out how to deal with. Darone adds the best way to protect yourself is to get a COVID vaccine or booster. A heads up for residents in Hudson and Stowe, there will be a planned power outage overnight. It'll run from midnight to 2 a.m. The Hudson Light and Power Department is repairing wires that were damaged during last week's storm. The outage is expected to affect about 13,000 customers. The first night celebrations kick off tomorrow at noon in Boston. This year includes the iconic ice sculpture pavilion in Copley Square. But with temperatures expected to be in the 50s, the ice sculptures may quickly melt. TK Skandarian with First Night says the warm forecast is mixed news. They will drip in good company. Um, Typically the, the crowds will be thick and the ice sculptures will I have a little bit of a shorter lifespan than they would if we were a little closer to the North Pole. But uh, <laughs> when the temperatures are, are up, the crowd numbers are as well. This year's ice sculptures will embrace an American Revolution theme. That's because 2023 will be the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. It's 833. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. 
on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics beat the Los Angeles Clippers 116-110 to last night at the Garden. They were without head coach Joe Mazzula, who's still recovering from an eye injury he got during a pickup game of basketball. The Seas are now off until Sunday. That's when they'll visit the Denver Nuggets. In your forecast, clear skies today with just a few clouds. Temperatures will top out near 60. Tonight, mid-40s and some clouds move in. Tomorrow, more clouds arrive for an over New Year's Eve in the mid-50s. Toward evening, it'll fall to the low 50s, and there's a 100% chance of rain. The showers will probably continue into the morning of New Year's Day. Then it'll clear up for a mostly sunny day in the low 50s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. From labor shortages to the Great Resignation, the American workplace shifted enormously in 2022. And perhaps no single company embodies this as much as Starbucks. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has his report. It is the middle of the morning rush at a Starbucks near Wall Street, and it is hopping. At the order pickup counter, dozens of people in suits stand around waiting for their drinks. Brandy, dark roast, Michelle, dark roast cream. The little team of workers is like a Swiss watch, steaming, tapping, pouring, serving up drink after drink after drink. Okay, Robert with iced coffee. Suzanne, brandy latte. I came here with labor economist Daniel Zhao. He works at Glassdoor, a labor research company. This is a well-oiled machine. It's almost like a modern-day assembly line. An assembly line that all but disappeared in the early part of the pandemic. But in 2022, these jobs came roaring back. At least, they tried to. As demand has started coming back, there hasn't been the same availability of workers. Zhao says 2022 was characterized by labor shortages, especially at restaurants, hotels, coffee shops, bars. They simply could not find enough workers to fill all of their jobs. And even when they did find those workers, keeping them was tough. The number of people quitting their jobs in the U.S. hit record highs over the last two years. But in these kinds of customer service jobs, quitting was double what it was for workers in other sectors. Because people have opportunities to go find another job, that means they're more willing to quit their job to actually go find something that might be better for them. Jell says this was a great thing for workers, but it did put companies in a tough spot. Because at the same time as all of this churn was happening in the job market, demand was soaring. This year, sales spiked at Starbucks. Customers were back. And they were very demanding, according to Starbucks worker Galen Berg. More customization is definitely part of it. There are people who want to get like a frappuccino and then add vanilla sweet and cold foam to the top of it. So like... I need vanilla sweet and cold foam. I need two hours of pumpkin cream cold foam. The worker shortage combined with rising demand created a second big trend in the job market this year, rising wages. In these kinds of service jobs, wages rose about 7%. 
But even that was not enough to hold back the third major trend for 2022, the rise of unions. Economist Daniel Zhao points out that union filings rose by more than 50% in 2022. When you have a hot job market, that gives workers more confidence and more power and more negotiating leverage to actually form these unions or at the very least negotiate for better pay, better benefits, better working conditions. A year ago, the first Starbucks unionized in New York. Hundreds of Starbucks have followed suit. The labor shortage, higher pay, the rise of unions, it's all prompted companies to start investing in their own trend of 2022, robots. Krispy Kreme is bringing in machines to frost and fill its donuts. Denny's has robots delivering food to tables. Jack in the Box has robots making fries. And at Starbucks, CEO Howard Schultz has created a machine that can make a frappuccino. It is investing almost half a billion dollars in robots that will hopefully be able to churn out complicated drinks in record time. Question is, can they accommodate those fussy customers? Right, Candice. Sugar cookie on the latte. Jennifer, soy brownie triple hot, I mean triple inch hot latte. Jenny, Trenta, no supreme clover. Robots or not, economist Daniel Zhao expects labor shortages, higher pay, and union activity to keep on humming well into 2023. Zachary, Zach Attack, Zach the main match. I think I got one more. Stacey Vanek Smith, NPR News. One of the takeaways from the midterm elections last month, a majority of young voters, millennials, and members of Generation Z cast their ballots for Democratic candidates. Now, young Republicans are demanding change from their party in order to keep up with their generation. Here to tell us all about it is NPR's Elena Moore. So what are uh, young Republicans telling their party? First and foremost, they're paying attention to this exit polling. Nationally, over 60% of voters under 30 cast their ballots for Democrats this midterms, which is the second highest youth turnout for Democrats after the 2018 midterms. And that's pretty notable. One of the conservatives I talked to about this was former congressional candidate Caroline Levitt, who's 25. Levitt lost her race in November, but as a member of Gen Z herself, she takes this all very seriously, calling it, you know, the greatest challenge for the Republican. Republican Party today. It's more than one candidate or one campaign can handle. It needs to be a colossal shift in the messaging in the mediums utilized by uh, the GOP and the establishment. And it's discouraging to see, you know, the Republican establishment not even acknowledge that this problem exists. Levitt's arguing that Republicans need to both improve their online outreach strategy and actively highlight issues that young people care about, like protecting the environment and reducing the cost of housing and even going to college. Uh, couldn't help notice that uh, abortion was not on that list. That was a big mm -hmm. issue, a big one for Democrats in the midterms. How does that play into young Republican strategy here? Right, right. Hey, it's a big challenge. Pollsters and voter data experts tell me that protecting abortion access is key to maintaining support among these younger voters, since it was such a big issue this past election. So I asked another young conservative about this, 25-year-old Iowa House Representative Joe Mitchell, and he told me Republicans really can't shy away from discussing divisive issues like abortion. And Mitchell himself, by the way, voted to restrict abortion access in the state legislature. But he made a similar point on addressing climate change and gun violence, too. Coming front and center on these issues to say, no, we believe in, you know, reasonable exceptions for these sorts of things. We believe in having a more renewable energy future when that works and when that's appropriate. And obviously, we want to make sure that kids are safe in school and we just have different ideas of how to protect them. 
And Mitchell went on to tell me that taking these social issues head on is important when they're asked about, instead of having Republican stances oversimplified by Democrats, opponents, the like. Now, the thing is, though, political parties are drenched and entrenched in tradition. They wear it like a coat of molasses. All right, so how can younger conservative influencers shake up institutions that maybe aren't easily changed? Well, that's what they're trying to figure out. We did reach out to the Republican National Committee. They did not respond to NPR's request for comment on this story. But, you know, long story short, A, it's going to be a difficult balance. You see from Levitt and Mitchell that social issues seem to, you know, at least be part of the way into getting this younger generation engaged. But as one Republican pollster put to me, social issues don't hand victories to Republican candidates the same way economic issues do. And that means it's a limited pool of resources. It's about where the money gets spent. Why spend money on engaging with a new age group, young voters who aren't reliably conservative and historically aren't even reliable voters, when older voters consistently vote Republican and turn out at higher rates? That's NPR's Elena Moore. Elena, thanks. Thanks, A. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Boston's first night celebrations are back to full scale. And this year, they'll feature one of the world's biggest instruments. And the yearly ceremony to honor Native Americans killed by the U.S. Cavalry at Wounded Knee featured, for the first time, moccasins, pipes, and other items recently given back by a central Massachusetts museum. Upper 50s today under mostly clear skies, mid-40s tonight with a few more clouds. More clouds tomorrow for an overcast day. Temperatures will be in the mid-50s. It falls to the low 50s toward evening, and you should expect rain as we welcome the new year. Showers continue into the following morning, then a mostly clear New Year's Day in the low 50s. Right now, it's 50, sorry, at 48 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Now, in business news, fast-rising interest rates have been the story in real estate this year, both here in Massachusetts and nationally. WPR's Dan Guzman reports that's been one of the things helping to cool down the state's home buying and selling world, at least a little. The number of homes up for sale has increased slightly this year. Massachusetts Association of Realtors President Don Ruffini says at one point there was only enough homes on the market for inventory to last one month. We're now at about 1.6, 1.7 months, which feels like a lot because we were so constricted, but a normal balanced market is six months. She adds that's helped sales prices from going up as much as they were. When it comes to an increasingly popular location, Rafini points to the state's second biggest city. Worcester like, has done so much growth and development over the last couple of years that they are now a, a hot place to buy. She says Polar Park and the Worcester Public Market have helped fuel that growth. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The arc-like, Arclight Cinema by The Garden in Boston will soon become an AMC theater. The cinema opened at the Hub on Causeway in December of 2019, then closed three months later because of the pandemic. The new AMC theater is expected to open this spring. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. 
donate at gbfb.org WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Christian Science Mother Church in Boston is home to one of the world's largest pipe organs. This weekend, visitors will get a chance to hear the instrument themselves at a free concert. It's part of Boston's first night celebration. WBUR's Amelia Mason was there when organists practiced ahead of tomorrow's performance, filling the sanctuary with soaring music. We'll play something scary for you. Yeah. Brian Ashley, the organ master for the Christian Science Church, sits at the organ's elaborate console, dwarfed by regal golden pipes towering above. He's playing a piece called Thou Art the Rock and showing off the organ's power. <laughs> and then it gets really fun where it goes. This has a great organ for that, let me tell you. great shapes. Ashley's fingers race across four keyboards stacked in front of him, and he controls the lowest notes below with his feet. But he says the essence of the instrument is a set of panels with rows of white buttons called stops. Ashley instructs me to pull one. Here, pull a stop. Ashley explains that you have to open at least one stop in order for the organ to make a sound. Each stop tells the organ to push air through corresponding pipes. And each stop mimics a different instrument, like a clarinet or a trumpet. When you open a stop, it transforms how the organ sounds. Ashley continues to play while I pull stops, and visiting organist Gigi Mitchell Velasco looks on. You're a natural. (laughs) This organ was built in 1952, but it was updated this year with new computer processors. The computer allows organists to do all kinds of tricks, like save their favorite combinations of stops. So a single button can trigger a constellation of sounds. Here's Mitchell Velasco. It's like baking a cake. Once you put all your different recipes on those buttons, you can choose your recipe at will down there with your feet as well. This is the first time Mitchell Velasco has touched this organ, the ninth largest in the world. And she's looking forward to playing it this weekend. So I'm looking forward to making a lot of noise and maybe making almost no noise at all because I have a program that's very kind of varied from very quiet from the song of peace to very bombastic. On Saturday afternoon, Mitchell Velasco will get to pull out all the stops, well, at least some of them, and help ring in the new year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. Every year around this time, Native people gather at the mass grave site in Wounded Knee, South Dakota. They pay tribute to those killed by the U.S. Cavalry in 1890. This year's remembrance included boxes of items that a museum in central Massachusetts recently returned to the Ogallala Lakota Nation. Nancy Cohen reports. We're going to need some more people to hold the boxes. 
On a muddy hillside in Wounded Knee, a crowd is preparing to honor those killed here 132 years ago. Uphill to a narrow gravesite, they carry seven long boxes filled with moccasins, pipes, cradle boards, and more. This is a war shirt, so be careful. Cedric Brokennose drove the items to the Pine Ridge Reservation last month from the Founders Museum in Barrie, Massachusetts. They were donated to the museum in the late 1800s by a traveling showman. Some had labels on them saying, Wounded Knee. Brokennose explains what the cavalry did on December 29, 1890. The uh, hostage guns were probably placed here where we're standing? Yeah, and we're pointing down at the people where they're camped, were hostage like they were shot at. Historians estimate as many as 300 were killed. They were part of Chief Bigfoot's band. They had been traveling from Standing Rock, trying to seek safety from white soldiers. Many here believe the items from Barry were stolen off the bodies of the dead. These articles were taken from our ancestors, and we need to re remember the pain they suffered. That's Frank Starr comes out, the president of the Oglala Lakota. It's been over a hundred years since they, these articles were last here, and now they're home. The boxes are placed end to end on top of the narrow snow-covered gravesite, with people lining each side. The smell of burning sage fills the air, a sacred pipe is filled, a drum is played, prayers are made in Lakota. As the ceremony ends, Richard Brokennose sings a ghost dance song that dates back to before the massacre. The boxes are then taken to a school gym in nearby Porcupine. They remain sealed out of respect for those killed. Photographs are displayed on top of each box, showing what's inside. There are pictures of tiny moccasins and cradle boards. Donna Salomon looks carefully and wipes away tears. I'm looking at them thinking, could that have belonged to my grandma? Could that have belonged to my grandpa? Whose baby was that, that those little, little baby articles belonged to? Could that have been someone related to me? The big question now is what to do with the items. Salomon says in her culture, clothing and some personal items are burned when a person dies to release their spirit. And so right now by bringing them back and if we can agree on how we're going to do that would be good because what is it like 130 some years now? Maybe finally their spirits can go where they need to go. Mary Bluelegs is also a descendant of a survivor. She wanted to get the items back from the Massachusetts Museum for a long time. After a while, I got mad, and I started standing up and telling them, we need to get them back. There has to be a way that we can get them back. And whatever you guys do, because women aren't allowed to do that, it's always up to the men. Whatever you do, I will back you up. She's glad the objects are back, but like Salomon, she would like to see them burned. It's enough that there's pictures out there. Everybody knows what they look like. There's pictures for future generations. But I want to burn them and give them back because they don't belong to us. They belong to the ones that passed away. Those are theirs. Over the course of the coming year, the community will meet to discuss what will happen with these items taken from their community generations ago. In the meantime, the boxes will remain sealed and in storage until this time next year.
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen in Oglala, South Dakota. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we take stock of some of the 1927 books, music, and films that'll become part of the public domain in the new year. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Scott Tong is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Scott. Hey, Rupa. Good morning. In Buffalo, much of the coverage has moved on after last week's storm, but more bodies tragically continue to be found. So we're going to talk today to a pastor there, and he sees disproportionate pain in low-income Buffalo neighborhoods where roads and housing are worse, there are fewer options for food, and there's a sense that power was restored later than in other neighborhoods. And we're going to have two looks at Pele's passing. Hmm. One is the impact this all-time soccer great had on the Brazilian people who have started several days of, of official mourning. Notably, Pele, a black man, was born just five decades after Brazil abolished slavery. And we'll talk to a filmmaker who made a documentary about Pele to talk about him, the young man, the character, the person behind the soccer genius. And a look at the year on the internet on our show. Rupa, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.54. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Brazil rings in the new year with a new president. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was sworn in on Sunday, even after serving nearly two years in prison. It's a return to glory for a politician who was once internationally celebrated. The most popular politician on earth. How Brazil's leftist president won support of the people. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News, Ami Martinez. On Sunday, a new crop of books, music, and films becomes part of the public domain, like this aptly titled song. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. NPR's Phil Harrell looked into what's coming our way on New Year's Day. We're talking about works from the year 1927. Anyone is free to share them, to use them in their own artworks without fear of legal liability. Jennifer Jenkins is the director of Duke University's Center for the Study of the Public Domain. She's got an impressive list of songs from that year. Irving Berlin's Putting on the Ritz. Now if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. Also, My Blue Heaven, Old Man River, George and Ira Gershwin's Funny Face, and It's Wonderful. There's one novelty song Jenkins remembers hearing as a kid. And I had that complete enchantment at the phenomenon of a frozen dessert homonym. Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. Rock, you know, you see a kid light up when they first hear a pun, and I thought, that's so clever. Among the books headed for the public domain, titles by Agatha Christie, Ernest Hemingway, William Faulkner. My favorite is Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And some of Arthur Conan Doyle's last Sherlock Holmes stories, which brings up an interesting question. Does just the book go into the public domain? Or can the still profitable characters like Sherlock and Watson remain protected? The estate of Conan Doyle has tried to use some very creative 
copyright theories to demand licensing fees for the use of these characters. Like, shouldn't their copyrights from the first book not expire after 95 years if the author kept writing about them in subsequent books? That got rejected in court. Or what about when other writers give Sherlock new character traits, something that wasn't in the books? Surely that's copyright infringement. Guess what? <laughs> no one can claim to own generic character traits. The court said no. Elementary, my dear Watson. 1927 was a transitional year for Hollywood with the release of The Jazz Singer. The very first spoken words in a film that were ever heard by an audience came from that movie. Wait a minute. Al Jolson's voice ushered in the age of the talkie. Now, setting aside the fact that the jazz singer was staggeringly racist, with Jolson performing in blackface, that movie did change everything. It meant the demise of silent films, and many greats were released that same year. The first winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture, it was called Outstanding Picture back then. It's a film called Wings. Also the influential sci-fi pick Metropolis. That has echoes and everything from Blade Runner to the Star Wars movies. Now, luckily, those films have been preserved. But once studios gave up on silent films, often reels were destroyed. Many of them were melted down for their silver content, which was thought to be more valuable than the film itself. Many were discarded to clear up storage space. The Library of Congress estimates that 75% of American silent films are partially or completely lost. Jennifer Jenkins says, if only they'd lasted until public domain day. We have a lot of empirical research showing that when works are in the public domain, they're more likely to be preserved because third parties can copy them, digitize them, save them for history without fear of legal liability. A process that can begin for works from 1927 on New Year's Day. Phil Harrell, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Amy Martinez. Mostly sunny in upper 50s today, partly cloudy in mid-40s tonight. Mid-50s tomorrow with clouds that'll give way to rain in the evening. Temperatures will be in the upper 40s and low 50s as we ring in the new year. It's 48 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. From everyone here at WBUR's Morning Edition, have a great New Year's. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.